Dithda Hadina Pabuni, the Bocasto Mescla Brion Druth, Ostias Genev Sove Berryman. Hello and welcome everyone to the Mescla Brion Druth podcasts, hosted by me, Sove Berryman. Mescla Brion Druth is a multi platform project using sculpture making and conversation to explore contemporary Cornish cultural identity. Through workshops, podcasts, a symposium and an exhibition, the project invites people to share their experiences of identity and Cornwall and their views on Cornish culture and its relationship to land, language, heritage, tourism, the Cornish diaspora and much, much more. These podcasts record conversations with guests whose research or lived experience touches on the project themes. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed are the speaker's own. All conversations are carried out with a spirit of generosity and openness, creating space for the discussions to twist and turn. And I'm very grateful to all who have taken part. In this seventh podcast, I'm joined by artists Kale Brandon and Angela Piccini of Association of Unknown Shores. Association of Unknown Shores formed in 2018. It is an interdisciplinary social practice art project and platform for the research, production and commissioning of art and cultural works. The project explores the hidden nature of persistent material and remembered traces of the enforced cultural exchange between what we now know as the UK and Canada. Working with the legacies of Martin Frobisher's 16th century attempt to colonise Nunavut. A collective of diasporic artists, Association of Unknown Shores, turns the unknown back on itself to critique the worn colonial discovery trope. We join the conversation with Kale telling us about the origins of Association of Unknown Shores. Gavenikam burs we the omloenhei goes lowers auto. I hope you enjoy listening. Association of Unknown Shores began because I was one project in relation to exploring Bristol and exploring ways of having a meaningful relationship with the places of Bristol was called Avon Canoe Pilot, which was in collaboration with Heath Bunting. This took place in the in 2000 somewhere. And we decided to um, explore the river, the river and waterways of Bristol as total rookies, as people who didn't know the water, as somebody who didn't even know how to canoe or navigate water systems. So it was very much about being, um, a lot of my work is very much about being an amateur, uh, about um, being DIY, um, about gaining access to knowledge and experiences through an embodied self-generative um, community empowerment process of just trying to make things happen to the scale in which we can. And um, so I found out about this story through 
my explorations of the Bristol waterways all that time ago, a couple of decades ago. And the story was of how an Inuit man um, undertook a hunting event with their with his kayak and his his um, bows and shot ducks within the centre of Bristol. And that utterly kind of compelled me to find out more. It just seemed kind of like, you know, so it was just this, this insight that I wanted to know more. And through researching, it became obvious that this was a very significant moment and too big a situation to explore by myself and it just occurred to me that I kind of wanted to work with Angela um, significantly around her, her own heritages and, and experiences of, of the city and how she works and um, but also because it, you know, we hadn't collaborated before, and I just kind of got a sense that, you know, it would be really, in really interesting to work together on this. So that's how it started. A conversation at Angela's house has now led to what we call Association of Unknown Shores, a, a platform that's been very process-led and and careful in its making, um, collapsing and reforming as we go along, um, and very much socially led. So a lot of association of men on their shores that we will produce, we're producing a body of objects. There is this other work that's going on under it, which is more like the mycelium of the project, which is generated through conversations, working with others, meeting difficult questions, wayfinding, making mistakes, picking ourselves up again, dropping threads, finding them again, all that kind of stuff that's led us to this very interesting point in time. Yeah, so it, it, I really love hearing Kale tell those origin stories in different ways and how they've how they shift and change your project as well. And I think from my perspective, having also, having lived in Bristol from 96 to 2021 and always sort of running across, you know, Kayla and I, our paths sort of crossed over in so many different ways through the city over that period of time. So I was really, really um, um, incredibly happy and excited when Kale talked to me about this history and asked if I wanted to do some work with her on it. And I think the other aspect of it is I'm originally from Canada, from Western Canada, but first generation of immigrant parents. So I'm from a settler colonial nation with very little in the way of time-based roots in Canada. And I'm part of a settler colonial complex. And I think for me, what was really interesting is that I had never, I'd heard of Frobisher in terms of like Frobisher's Lemonade or in a Canadian context, 
Frobisher Bay, which is what the capital city of Nunavut in northern Canada um, was called. It's now called Iqaluit, um, which is the place of many fishes. But it was named Frobisher Bay by Martin Frobisher. But I'd never been taught that history um, when I was going to school in Canada. So to come to the UK to learn the relationship between um, the privateers, Queen Elizabeth I, the sort of nexus of Elizabethan magic, theft, fraud, political chicanery, and the origins of colonization was really just a really interesting opportunity and a lot of responsibility to hold. And it felt like that was a thing that I wanted to do to, um, to do the research around this project. So my own practice, I have a real interest in how we can activate the material traces of the past and the present, how we can think about archives and artifacts as radical time traveling objects that depending on how you handle them and depending on how you reposition them and juxtapose them, collage them, can potentially create new, new futures and myriad new futures. And so how you handle these works, it comes with obvious, obviously huge weight because whatever you do with an object and a trace will foreclose some futures while opening up other futures. So what do we do with this? And it became really interesting for me as well. How do we, how do we hold this story which sits at an intersection of various different people? So the Inuit of Northern, what's now known as Canada, and these thieves from England, but also ordinary people. So the story of Frobisher's journey to Northern Canada, you know, he's press ganging free miners and Cornish miners. So basically forcing laboring men to be part of his crew to go and oppress other people in another part of the world. And me and Kale have Obviously, we are connected to these stories through our own personal legacies, but we don't have direct descendancy from any of those communities. And yet we also want to speak to and speak back at and speak into and make work that sits within and messes colonization up in some way. So... It was that sense of, okay, so so where do, where do we go from here? What do we do with this history? What are appropriate ways of working with these materials and of speaking with and working alongside and collaborating with people who are from those descent communities, whether those are the descent communities of the free miners in the Forest of Dean or the descent communities of people who currently live in Iqaluit, which is a thriving city of, you know, two to 3,000 people in the far north. Thank you. There's so much just in both what both of you have said there. There's so much that um, it, I'm sort of just full of processing all the layers of that as well. <laughs> um, a thing that really comes across in um, initially in some of that is the way you speak about you speak about you, the project and your work in the project 
from a perspective of taking time, paying attention, um, wayfinding, and um, it feels like that that approach or that way of making work and about um, exploring your way through this subject matter is absolutely essential and integral to it. Um, When you think about that, the way you approach the project, is that um, a strategy you developed or is it... Is it something um, that just naturally evolved? Like, did you set out on the project for with that in mind, that way of working in mind? Um, well, we knew we needed to work with people in Inuit communities that this story directly related to and who and affected and also work directly with the remains of the story which there are many um, I'm I essentially feel like I'm a landless person with no indigenous um, I have an indigenous heritage in a kind of very um, Actually, maybe I can't even answer that question. So I have a very kind of complicated relation to relationship to belonging, um, which has come about through my kind of dual heritage heritages and ancestral stories that have led to my kind of personal identity. Um, we, I think some of those intentions like wayfinding, um, working with others, conversation has very much, I think I can be fair to say it's been both part of our practices for a long time. This project definitely taught me and developed the core kind of that this, that this is a, a really essentially really interesting way of working and, and essential way of working when we're dealing with the impacts, the ongoing impacts and legacy of colonisation and coloniality, which once you start working with it, it's just riddled, like Bristol is riddled and with ongoing kind of colonial structures that perpetuate um, um, that kind of form of reality and relation to, to land and people. Um, so we, we're dealing with really kind of a, a kind of system, systematic approach, colonisation, which is devastating, traumatic um, and ongoing. So we knew also that we had to kind of really sort of just strip back and kind of find out through talking and working with these different remains in a way that kind of we would be led rather than leading because obviously that was a kind of ethically a really important standpoint um 
And in fact, we even, and, the, and there's some moments along the way that really challenged our identities and our kind of ethical working relationships and what authenticity is and where we can even speak from, where we can even make from, or, you know, where do we make from, where do we speak from? What's what? What can we hold, and what is for others, you know, to to, to actually lead on? Very, very core, important ways of working, working with communities where where trust around has been eroded through through the impacts of colonization. So, and going back to that kind of mycelian network, kind of working with objects that generate conversations. I think, in some ways, those conversations will are one of the most important legacy of this work. Um, we went to Iqaluit and that was an amazing achievement to get there. So, so I think when we met Janet Pitzulak Brewster, she actually said, listen, the sound of your voice, my voice she was referring to, is actually going to be potentially a trigger for many people here and then you know because very kind of British middle of the road accent that still has a kind of traumatic effect on people that have been on the receiving end of colonization so we so that so there was these kind of moments of kind of like oh right I'm kind of like what is my my cultural identity, the identity that I'm born into, the country, the, the world, <laughs> you know, what's the actual impact and implication for other people? How do we work with this? This is not ours. How do we work with this story? Um, where do we stand from? So lots of the approaches were very much developed through that, having to be careful and wanting, not having to be, wanting really wanting and wanting that to be more important than what necessarily gets what what the result is necessarily actually at the end of the day you know um and to be okay with that care not always landing so i think one of the one of the key parts of learning of working with um the people that we've been working with um that sense of just because you're caring and attending and doing things mindfully and well doesn't mean that you'll get a response. And I think learning different modes of response, different modes of attention um, to the extent to which, you know, what we do might be irrelevant to people at certain points in time and learning to be okay with that has also been part of that process, which is, meant that we both have had to shift the ways in which we might have worked previously so it's learning new new practices in that way one really interesting experience we had with one of the objects was some of the 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 ore that was mined taken from Codlon Island is wound up in Dartford in a wall in Dartford that's currently um, framing a kind of modern shopping experience of like Asda and B&Q and, you know, Pizza Hut. And anyway, so we went there and it, and um, some of this ancient 
stone that was mined in the 16th century, 1570 to 1878, three miners mined that up in Forgive me if my pronunciation is off. Not good. Um, so actually a lot of the work is actually being in the place, going to experience the remains in a kind of very physical way where we don't quite know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen. And um, one of the stones, had, well, a few of the stones had fallen out of that wall and um, one of them was just next to a car and it was just this moment, just like, okay, we're going to take these stones, these stones that, that were mined in 1578. And um, we ended up carrying one of them back to Icaliot and handing it eventually to Janet Pitchellet Brewster. And we didn't really know the significance of that, um, but slowly the stone got heavier on our backs, you know, and more and more we'd get it out and hand it around kind of cafes and restaurants and talk to people about the story of, of why we got stone in our bag. And that was a way of dis dispersing the story and dispersing kind of our, the practices and the current dilemmas that we're kind of question, we're questioning through that. So I, I feel like, like your work, this way that the stone acted as a focus for us to kind of generate conversations. And then there was this amazing moment where we handed it back, we handed it to Janet. And, it, and also through that kind of carrying of the stone, we realized, oh, this is, this is actually falling into a performative realm. This is falling into a kind of quite an, a, a sort of indie repatriation kind of process. This is falling into women's hands where it's all been in male, male hands before. This is, you know, so we kind of, it gathered momentum and meaning as we kind of went along. And, um, and, and then when we actually handed it to Janet and it was like, oh wow, this is, this is quite significant. You know, this is, this is the first time this stone has returned back to the land of its um, belonging for five, like how, how many, 500 years, 600 years. And it came through our rucksacks and our hands and our funny, our sort of meetings and our kind of just having to lug it about places. And so that felt really like we learned through engaging with the object in that way the remain of that object in that way and continue to. So then so now that stone appeared in um, really significant work um, by Lacolube Barthay Williamson and Jamie Griffiths, where they created this image. I don't know the title of that work. Do you know the title of their work, Angela? Uh, it's called... Um... The known shore, white, white, um, white liar, white liar, and the known shore. So, is there a link to that via your through your project website? No, not yet. But we've got to just sort our website out. We haven't done that all yet, but it will be great. Yeah, it'd be. I'll I'll try and share that. That would be fab. Thanks. So, so through yeah. going there, we met. Jamie and told this story of Frobisher. She had this persona called White Liar already through through other she's been exploring that kind of white liar identity. 
and then went on to create white liar costume based on Frobisher and then and then they produced this kind of image which had like Lacaluc kind of referencing the Queen Elizabeth I and then uh, it's just it, you know just need to see it really but the stone was it within that so then they went and collected the stone from Janet and Janet left it in a shoe for them to pick up it got taken out of the shoe got put into that shot so it's just like amazing to see um what can happen you know like the ongoing legacy of our kind of spontaneous and like um improvised decision making that we that we had was just like should we take it yeah let's go for it and now what should we do and now what should we do and that's what that I, I'm still amazed by that. Um, yeah. And I think, so I was just going to say, I think what's so interesting about that particular rock as well is that it ties us back into those debates about land without having to be landlocked in some way, because that chunk of land has moved around the world now several times. And then, um, so Jamie Griffiths is a white English artist who lives up, in Iqaluit and Lakuluk Williamson Bathory is a Greenlandic uh, Inuk um, artist who also lives in Iqaluit. So they collaborate. They then made this sort of tableau photograph, which was then turned into a large sort of billboard, which was installed in a park in Vancouver, which is where I'm from, which is in Kitsilano. And the importance of doing that is because that part of Western Canada remains unceded indigenous land. So that part of Canada never went through any form of treaty process. So the crown effectively stole that land from the indigenous nations who occupied it. So that's the kind of, that's the import of installing that photographic work in Vancouver, in a part of Vancouver called Kitsilano, which is named after Chief Katsilano. Um, so that rock from Nunavut, which went off to Dartford, which then went back to Nunavut, which then went to Vancouver to say something really profound about land and ownership and control. And you can't, there is no ownership. So I think what's also interesting between that relationship between the unceded territory of Vancouver and then in Nunavut in northern Canada is the word Nuna means land. And Inuit, they don't have the same kind of treaty territory process as other indigenous people in Canada. So it's more of a, it's more of a shared whole territory that's marked by settlement, hunting, gathering and different kinds. So there's not that same sense of land ownership and exchanging of land as packet through Inuit communities. Frobisher also took a narwhal horn on the first. So Frobisher basically, I don't know, like maybe listeners won't know, but Frobisher was the first person commissioned by the Crown, Elizabeth I, 15. Uh, my date's all over the place. The first trip, maybe it was 1568. Anyway, he was commissioned to break through the Northwest Passage. And also the sailors were informed by John Dee, who was very important to Elizabeth I about navigation, about what to find, how to record. John Dee had really explored Columbus's um, journals. Um, so there was, 
And then John Dee, they say, through this around about the same time. We don't know. I don't know how true this is, but I loved it when I was given this information. I was, give, I was like in a vegetable shop, hanging out with a friend, told them about this history, about John Dee. And he said, oh, yeah, apparently John Dee did a rich. John Dee was a person that named British Empire and did a ritual to evoke British Empire. Whether it's true or not, who knows? But just the information, that kind of visual kind of like, oh, wow, you know, right. And it was around about the same time. So if you kind of like research John Dee, who's significantly involved in this story. And um, the narwhal horn that Frobisher took at the same time as this piece of rock that they decided had gold in it, which didn't have gold in it at all. Um, which was the first gold mining fraud of the of the, of the Americas. Um, at the same time, Frobisher, when he landed in Bristol, rode to rode to Windsor, and gave the this narwhal horn that that was recorded in George Brass's journal because basically when they found it, they did this test on whether it had magical powers. So the sailors did a test on whether it had magical powers by putting some spiders in the hole at the end. And the spiders presently died, and therefore it was magical. And it's just this really, George Best records, it's a very, it's a, there's very in-depth accounts of this story, obviously through the lens of his beingness within it, which was a, a kind of privileged position. The sailors are silent. There's no voices from them. There's no songs from them. There's no the miners are silent. There's no there's no so we don't know what their songs, what their stories were at all. Obviously, we know the the higher ranked kind of people on that journey, exploitation journey. And um, so anyway, so then um, so so in in relation to going back to kind of talking about how we kind of experienced that story and that object, the narwhal horn, because the narwhal horn was placed into Elizabeth I's crown jewels. It was that kind of, it was one of the most wealthy things you could have. And all the royalty of Europe had some form of narwhal relationship. The narwhal horn was about protection, about power, about potency, about, um, yeah, all sorts of things. It was ingested to protect from poisoning. It was held to, as symbols of power. It was used as, you know, all sorts of kind of magic. So basically, Angela and I were like, okay, there was this company on eBay who sold replica Nawa horns. We brought one, broke along the way, came, arrived at my house, broken into. So then we had to get, we got in touch with. Lisa Scantlebury, really artist, model maker based at Spike Island. Um, and then she kind of fixed it and then we went and and then we decided to recast the narwhal horn as forms of kind of magic remaking, recasting, you know, recast it and then pushed it back out onto eBay as an object that people could buy. Um, so it's this kind of like shady kind of like, you know, little sort of eBay run, you know, recasting, re, 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 re kind of monetizing 
but then we kind of did it in this way where we wanted to work with Kadjafoot Society, a performing arts um, group based in Akaliat, um, who we, we met many of the performing artists and the directors of that group. And they're currently trying to set up a performing arts centre and there's a big fundraising. So then we decided like, we had this kind of real sort of noodle around how much would we kind of like sell this narwhal horn for, you know, and we ended up with 77 pounds and 98 pence. We're trying to do something around dates and something around, you know, I don't know, just mucking around really. And to our surprise, people brought it endlessly. And we're just like, oh my God, people, there's another, someone's brought the narwhal horn. Okay. And, you know, um, so at the moment the site's down, but, demand this this replica 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 narwhal horn is quite high at the same time it enabled us to then siphon money off from that sale to Kajifut society so then the people that brought the narwhal horn would also get a certificate showing that they're the money that they use for the narwhal horns gone towards this art center so we liked that that kind of not knotty kind of weird and then we put wrapped round just like a Xerox copy of George Best's account of this magical test that the sailors did. Just wrapped it round it with a plastic bag, plastic uh, elastic band around it so people could read that. Um, and then we had some suggestions on how it could be used. And um, recasting the Noah Wolfhorn came another object called Our Scepter. Or maybe I'll pass over to Angela to talk about that. What we really liked was how these contemporary exchanges related to these histories. So that sense of certification, so which which spoke to the sort of shareholders of the of the um, Northwest Passage, you know, the Cate's company that was set up to go on this colonial expedition from 1576 to 78, you know, there were shareholders, they were defrauded, they received certificates which were inauthentic. You know, all of these sort of different sorts of stories of truthful things and false things, all rendered fictional through these kind of weird, magical scientific relationships. So I think that's that's what we're always keeping in mind when we're when we're doing this kind of work, which is what connects it with this next piece of our scepter where we were working starting to work um, more regularly with so we've mentioned Janet Pitsulak Brewster before so she was the artistic or executive director of the Nunavut Arts and Crafts Association and then she became deputy um, mayor of Iqaluit and she's now recently been elected as an MLA so a member of the legislative assembly for Nunavut so she's gone from being an artist to being a politician while always being politically active as an artist so she makes she makes cast um, wax heads of women particularly to comment on and to intervene in missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada so she'll take these heads to different kinds of political meetings to in order to presence the lives of these women to call for action so we're working more with her and then um, Kale was saying, we should be working with Cleo Lake, who's the deputy Lord Mayor of Bristol for uh, her period of time. I can't remember where that started and stopped, but in the late 2010s, you know, sort of 2015 to 18, something like that. 
And she's also an artist. So she's a choreographer. She works with textiles. She has uh, mixed heritage Ghanaian and British, I believe. So there's that similar. So here we are faced in this kind of serendipitous position of working with all these women, these women of mixed heritage. So Janet Petulak Brewster is um, her grandfather, I think, was Scottish. So she's also got this slightly uneasy or or a set of relationships that she's also having to work through and then in this intersection between politics and arts which is like magic and arts um and so we got together and we through a series of zoom meetings um we started to work on well what what would it be to collaborate the four of us to make an object that could potentially catalyze um new shore-to-shore relations what would a kind of speculative future anti-racist decolonial feminist object look like that we could make in the knowledge that of course all of those things are also impossible we can't the four of us can't decolonize the world we also we will continue to struggle with all sorts of complex issues around racism and oppression and discrimination I think what Kale, you were talking about with with language and the sound of language is so interesting how, Kale, you were sort of seen as, as a colonial oppressor. It, and my voice is heard by people in Canada as English. So, you know, Janet was saying, you know, both of you sound English, which is just, if to a person in Britain would sound crazy that I would sound English, but that's how I'm read. So there's just all these, it's code switching, it's unstable ground. And that's the sort of the place that we're occupying. So taking using the narwhal horn as the starting point, then what were the kinds of objects or actions that each of the four of us could contribute that would then connect with this narwhal horn? So we're going to be creating different sort of connector objects that would tie in these different material objects, basically to create a five a five sectioned scepter like you have a scepter to open parliament so off the narwhal horn will be four different objects um mine involves sort of making basketry out of videotape so with my interest in moving image and my interest in sort of in early documentary this part of the world was the site of one of the earliest documentaries so robert flaherty's um nanook of the north and canada's indigenous people have been the subject of so many documentaries throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, so I was interested in, in just in working with film and videotape as a material around that and thinking through basketry as well. Um, Hale, what was your... Yeah, I just got really into the eye of the needle, the idea of this, the, the, the needle eye um, and how it sort of symbolises so many different kind of things for me like you know the kind of typical saying getting through the eye of the needle you know and women's essentially women's practices of of making um practices that that almost are ubiquitous so they kind of translate and transcend a lot of differences um obviously differences within that but there is a place there was a place to meet through the eye of the needle that's what I was like riffing on um so yeah that was and I I mean the idea of making this collaborative sculpture object work 
our scepter and it being five pointed the kind of the chaos of that making has been like fascinating um and and it's still ongoing i mean we're, we're kind of like at a stand still i'd say but um we'll see what comes out the other end so this idea of kind of like the speculative future kind of it's almost like for me it's almost like a science fiction object um well it's, it's an object of hope as well that like that and and also it's a very practical object it symbolizes working practices and current kind of political structures that hold and have many voices holding the seats of power which which is is, is a very kind of every daily life kind of piece in a way um but it was it's a five piece because there's there's four of us um all quite di diverse in our practicing in our practices and our making sensibilities and then there's the non-human the narwhal the un the voice that you know the voice of the of the narwhal which is it's is obviously very core and essential to it as well um, um janet's going to be contributing one of her cast heads to this and particular and but and also um pieces of treated arctic char skin so janet works with the different materials of the far north one of which is the skin of an arctic char which is a bit like a salmon and you can cure it and turn it into a kind of leather and she colors it and all sorts so that's that's going to be woven into it um and then cleo is contributing uh choreography so we're also really interested in and we have been inviting instructions from collaborators so in terms of what do we do with this scepter Cleo's sort of starting us off with a series of movements and actions that we can do with the sector both here in the UK but then eventually sending that over to Ikalowitz so that we could have so that we can mirror actions across the two at, on on the two shores you mentioned a bit earlier on about having worked with some people in the forest of Dean and I, I'm interested in how the work was sort of um, engaged with or not there or what what came up from that? Yeah, so we got in touch with um, Elaine um, Mormon, found out she's the only registered or free minor um and jonathan can, can you explain briefly just what a free minor is please yeah so i'll do my best i don't have the full kind of but yeah i'll do my best um so a free minor so the, the i can't remember when the three minors kind of decree took place but it's it's a kind of status that anybody born within a certain um radius of the Forest of Dean has a right to mine um, minerals and earth, earth resources from the land. And um, 
any man, any man of a certain age had that right to be named as a free miner and to mine the land within the, the home of, of the Forest of Dean. So it's incredibly interesting and I haven't explained it in depth enough. Please go and find out more. Um, so we were fascinated by this, the status of the free miner, um, especially in relation to how much independence they had um, in quite an oppressive sort of regime, really. Um, and that originally, I think, nine or 12 free miners were, went from the Forest of Dean to on this on this voyage to the to the Arctic to 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 Nunavut to Kodlorana and all survived came back to the Forest of Dean continued with their practices still unknown we don't know um, who their ancestors are, are or anything but with a bit of digging around I'm sure we'd find out um, so I we we were initially moved by this and also wanted to kind of contact the free mining community. So I, after researching, I found out that women were given the right to become formally recognized as free miners. Women, children, families, uh, um, men, women, and children were all miners. It was just like this kind of certificate that held the kind of male um, miner as the one that, that had this status um, in a formal manner. Um, so we managed to find uh, Elaine um, and emailed her, and then through that she got she told us to get in touch with Jonathan Wright, her brother at Clearwell Caves, and this cave mining cave has been in their family for generations. So Elaine told us this amazing story that she can remember. One of her earliest memories is of being lowered by a bucket into the mine and picking stuff up and mining so it's just like oh wow that's just that's just epic and totally interesting so we went to see them and um it was quite interesting the conversation that we had because there was lots of like they they didn't know stuff that we knew we didn't know obviously which was was quite interesting almost taking some of their kind of story back and saying look this is what happened and and i think jonathan might actually go on to kind of make that more specific on, on the Clearwell Cave website. But Elaine, basically, we spent a day with her, told the story in a very sort of over a cup of tea sandwich kind of way, um, which we hope that she will then come to Bristol and see the work. And there's other things that are going to develop from that. Currently, currently the last thing that happened was she sent a picture of her pickaxe which is just stunning. So it's the pickaxe that she's always worked with. And she told us this process of trying to become formally recognized as a female in the free, free mining. Um, so actually, she said that she got through the wording because it's stated any free miner should be male. So then that was this amazing kind of through that. It's like, oh, wow. So she's just like, yeah, I could have, I could have, not wasted so much time because I could have used this wording as a way to get through but then her brother told me actually no it's not like that so it was all this kind of like back toing and throwing but through that an object a brick was I produced this brick brick which she hasn't seen has she seen it no I've sent her a picture of it that, that is embroidered the word should on it 
a bit like a prayer stool, but it's brick. Can you remember like um, embroidery tapestry that was wrapped around bricks to keep doors open? I've got this kind of weird memory of childhood, funny little practice, funny practice of tapestry wrapped around bricks for doors to be opened with. So that's what came out of that, this object, that this tapestry, tapestry brick that's got the word should. And I was fascinated by this word should because it was a bit like an eye of a needle. It just kind of like get through. Um, so yeah, so that was this kind of ongoing conversation. And I'm not really sure... I mean, Elaine turned out mind earth pigments, ochre, ochres, so purple, yellow, and red. And she told us this amazing story of one of her largest commission was from the British Army for the tanks going out to the She provided the earth pigments for those tanks to be painted. That was just like, oh, now that's just mental. Um, and why if I mean like so specific to like like I was just like wow that's so strange. Um how our work was received so far, I think they were really pleased that we took the time to come and really kind of find out and we want to kind of go on to do to make a kind of portrait of Elaine's pickaxe because it's 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 the, the She's retired now, you know, and this is her tool, you know, it's really significant tool. And then Jonathan, when we went to see the Clearwell Caves, got all his kind of objects out. One of them was this amazing hat that had been found down in the mine. And it was so beautiful. It was paper thick. It was like it was like holding an eggshell, but it's this really old felt hat, like miner's hat. But then he was really interested in the Monmouth cap that Angela has been making in, in relation to, which is entangled in so many histories, the Monmouth Cup. Um, so I think that, so, so far, curiosity, um, how it's been received with curiosity, and, and we, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next when hopefully we can and generosity, you know, Elaine was very generous with her time. We talked about certain things we had no idea about. You know, we went back to find out, out about the basket. So this is another object, um, which has just recently been developed um, through a basket maker, Nora Kennedy, who's in Stroud. Um, but the basket... A free miner's basket was found on Codlawn Island in the permafrost. And it turned out that Angela, one of Angela's um, friends during her student days, was one of the people that, that, that excavated it. So we, what was her name? So, sorry. So Alison, Alison Bain. So I met Alison Bain in Sheffield when I did an MA in archaeology and she was doing an MSc She's also from Canada and we met in Sheffield and then she went back to Canada. And the next thing I heard was in this project that she was one of the excavators on Codlinarna Island who had actually uncovered this basket. So I think it's also why this story is really, it's so tentacular. It's a really difficult story to tell because there is, it's, there are so many complex intersections and serendipities 
but like the story itself in the past, it also mixes magic and science and art because all these things happen as though they were ordained, as though we're sitting within some kind of science fiction story. And it also, every time we sort of try to tell the story of just one object, it goes out in so many different directions, which of course is the same for any object biography, whether you're telling the story of a Frisbee or anything else. But I think the project, what, the, what we're trying to manifest are these sort of deep time intersections and those global connections and how how the specificities of like a basket or a bit of ochre in the forest of Dean connects us with these broad, much broader processes and relationships. I wonder, just thinking about those, like, like you say, the sort of um, the magics and if, if we include science practices within sort of magic um that um that a bit like um the way you were speaking about the narwhal horn is those sort of magics become a, a sort of fetish that um further controls and um is a vehicle for um for maintaining power or for shifting balances of power and it feels like there's something in what you're doing that is also um kind of moving around blowing away some of the smoke and moving away some of the mirrors that um to reveal some truths if you know that's quite a heavy word but um some truths behind um things that have been interpreted as um sort of magics and wonders do you like what would you think about in relation to that well um speaking for myself i can definitely say that this project has re revealed um to me a lot of the places of bristol and um, the connections that I didn't know of before and the ways of relating that can actually form something meaningful on my terms, not on, obviously, you've got meaningful, different ways of feeling meaning and belonging. Um, so I think it's revealed um, a kind of belongingness through this practice that... Um, and then within our own, within the kind of realm of the Association of Unknown Shores, which has incorporated many artists and talked to many people, I feel as if it has revealed different kind of moments of how we relate to each other and the places in which we are. I don't know how far that um, will translate. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it translates for the audiences that see see the work um, at St Stephen's Church in November in Plymouth, uh, Plymouth Art Centre later in early next year. It certainly has um, revealed much of the way in which I want 
beneficial ways of kind of approaching art practice and daily life um, on my scale of um, community. And I think it also, I mean, I'd like to also talk about another object, like the feather, this feather from um, Jamie Griffiths' hat as White Liar, as Frobisher White Liar. She sent that to us and it arrived in the post. I was like, oh, I want to open this at this local cafe that I haven't been in ever before. Let's go there. And then my um, a friend, you stay, um, who often comes along with me on, on, our little, on our sort of experimental sort of day is out trying to kind of making kind of work in the neighborhood of Easton. She came along and we went to this cafe called Monte Carlo down in Easton on Stapleton Road to open this package and wanted to open it somewhere that was public, somewhere where other people could see the package being opened, somewhere that was like a, a kind of a public space that was kind of where people would sort of like could see you if they wanted to or not, you know, I love kind of it, the incidental witness. That's like a big part of the work, incidental and, and ways of chaotically dispersing information in this way. It's really been part of it. Through word of mouth, you know, conversation, gossip, um, new media and, you know, anyway. So I went to Monte Carlo and we opened it there and we sort of like got chatting to the people who own the Monte Carlo cafe. And then um, one of the guys said, look, go look at that. Go look at that black and white picture of the Monte Carlo cafe on Stapleton Road and um, took a closer look at it. It was just above our, our, our um, table. And it and I realised that the cafe was the colonial provision store. That was the name of the cafe. It was Colonial Provision Store. Wow. And it was just this amazing photograph that just blew my mind. Amazing. Um, and then sent me and you stay into this kind of like real sort of like the, the kind of the opening of the, the feather, the hat, the Colonial Provision Store, then going up over to what used to be known as um, Colston Road, which had recently been renamed Toppled Toppled Avenue, Toppled Road. I mean, it's just been graffitied on by some residents, but we wanted to go there and kind of significantly mark. And we use we use the feather as way of kind of brushing and evoking and caring for these new site, these kind of precarious sites where there's this massive transition out of kind of this, you know kind of old world into kind of the new sort of rena a renaming, a reclaiming post-Colston um, of these places. So, yeah, it was just like, um, in terms of how that affected me in terms of social relevance, it affected the cafe owner because it was like, oh, look, we're doing this. And did you know your – he didn't know. I He didn't know the cafe used to be a colonial provision store. I was just like – just through reading, I was like, did you know that this was this? And then he was like, oh, yeah. And, and now there's this kind of like, oh, let's try to find out about what that was. And who. So um, I hope that I feel like I've received a wealth of kind of relevance through doing, practicing this practice. And I'm really curious to see how the audience might receive relevance through that, that 
that I don't don't really know yet. But I know that through distributing and collaborating with other artists, Cafe Hines as well, um, Kelly J. Jones, Nora Kennedy, who just recently helped me make the basket, you know, so many people. And and in all this time, we are dispersing this story. We're kind of being, we're sending it out, and it is creating relevance and and kind of work in this quite sort of well rhizome like mycelium like kind of manner which I find exciting and in itself seems to have like the uh, ritual magic practices used for it from but from a cleansing Mm. or remaking perspective i mean this is how it connects with your project so really so so there is something about the activation and the event of the live conversation combined with some form of collective making material making and that that exchange between hands of different kinds of materials and the specificity of that how the stone generates a different conversation to the narwhal horn which generates a different conversation to the feather there's something about weightiness and the actual material of what we're working with that produces really different relationships and different sorts of different sorts of possibilities and it is absolutely that it's that it carries through the conversational mode, but without the objects, um, that's a different that's a different sort of um, legacy, I suppose as well. It does need it needs the objects to really generate these new spaces and times. It generates a different quality of um, a different kind of temporal quality as well, and a different sort of relationship. There is um, just the holding of a thing and the passing of a thing of an object from one person to the other creates that different sense of attention, a different quality of attention. Do you feel that that connects to, for instance, um, the pickaxe you mentioned and other sort of like the baskets you've spoken about, other forms of hands making that might be more around um, uh, kind of a utilitarian sort of very purpose-focused activity. Mm. Um, we can talk about the hydrophone because it's a very purposed kind of object that has working with um, Kathy Hind on creating, making hydrophones for listening to water before that Angela made some hydrophones from YouTube lesson. Uh, you know, like we all do, so many lessons on YouTube these days. Um, so, but but that that initial first the first hydrophone thing that we made back in two thousand and eighteen and nineteen, 18, yeah. 18, 18. developed into us working with Kathy, who's got really worked through her practice, got this listening practice, deep listening practice, and hydrophone making, and it's. A really practical object that's so unpractical, like listening to water, like you know, and um, it doesn't have that kind of functioning in daily life thing as something like the pickaxe or the basket has. It's sort of more kind of 
you're a sensing objects of something quite strange, underwater sounds, you know, sounds of the water, and, it, and picking up on sounds that maybe they were the same five, six hundred years ago. This is what remains. This is like the clear, this is the clear, unending sound that connects that time to now. Um, I'm just fascinated by everything that you're talking about and there's so many things that are pinging off in my yeah. mind that I'm thinking oh, I could just blab on for ages now about that <laughs> but um but I won't and um I think what you've really sort of nicely highlighted there is like just in what you're saying a moment ago Kale is like there's something about perhaps then the art space in its wider sense that can perhaps allow for this tenuous sort of finding out about something or feeling around something. Um, yes, definitely. But, but, I mean, it comes into then the money, right? Like, <laughs> do we have time to find out? Like, do we have the money to find out? And I guess as workers in different fields, we all know that. So I think, we have been lucky enough, well, not, you know, not, not lucky enough, we have managed to secure funding to actually have the time to find out um, a little bit. Um, and, yeah, I just don't want to ro rom overly romanticise that because, like, obviously, you know, um, time also is a kind of pri privileged thing in some senses that being able to kind of do this so that's why I'm really interested in objects that then can generate income because like more in the world of plumbing for instance so they you know your main your bedrock incomes you know how these objects can then be reweaved into current economies and how we can through artists but also through other means get by through um this type of thing you know how do how do we create kind of um financial sort of possibilities that enable that finding out time anyway that's going on to another sorry although it's it's not right it's it, it's the same subject right you know we were talking about magic but practical magic is also about alchemy it's about transforming labor into other things which may include money which allows people to thrive in different ways and clearly this small project can't solve any number of things but we have been we have been generating flows of capital in some interesting ways and we've, we've yeah i think i think which raises questions for the future thank you thank you both so much I'm vastly appreciative. Thank you. Miraz. Miraz. Miraz, Agas Gosloas. Thank you for listening. Further episodes of the Mescla Bruyon Druis podcast can be found on my website, saveaberryman.co.uk. That's S-O-V-A-Y-B-E-R-R-Y-M-A-N.
www.imam.co.uk where you'll also find guest biographies and a resource page of links to further reading on the topics discussed. If you feel inspired to join the Mescla conversation about contemporary Cornish cultural identity, please get in touch with me, Sove Berryman, via my website or social media. You'll find Mescla Bouillon Druis on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The Mescla Bouillon Druis podcast and project has been made possible due to a wealth of in-kind help and support from many parties, including the Wender Perrin Festival, Gorseth Kernow, Cornwall Council's Cornish Language Office, Coethysan Yeath Canuick, Crescent Kernow, Cornwall Neighbourhoods for Change and Falmouth University Falmouth Campus. The project has been supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and further funding has been gratefully received from Historic England via Redreath Unlimited. Agas Termin, Agas Grellas. Thank you for your time. See you later.